What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Pele leaned in and said something to Freddie. Don't let them change you. Keep working on what makes you different and what makes you special. It was great advice, but it caused me some problems. But what could change Freddie do? Soccer is going to explode and it's going to be around this kid. We were the Beatles. Everywhere we went, it was the Freddie show. And with that came the expectation and with that came the pressure. New episodes of American Prodigy drop Tuesdays from Blue Wire Podcasts. Hey, flamethrowers, Amira here with a burn it all down hot take. We are still talking about coaching. Back in episode 175, Much Ado About Coaching, me, Lindsay, and Jess talked a lot about coaching, racialized dynamics, the way it influences girls dropping out of sports, um, et cetera, et cetera. Since then, we've continued to think about the subject from a myriad of ways, from my hot take with Dr. Derek White on black college football coaches to a special Patreon episode where we talk more about what good coaching looks like. This hot take is very special because we have not one, but two interviews coming out this week that continues to further the conversation about coaching. Later this week, I'll talk to women's soccer coaches at Penn State and Cook and Erica Dombach about what it's like coaching through a pandemic and how they, you know, came into the profession. But today I have a very special conversation that is part of the Breakthrough Summit. Now, the Breakthrough Summit is created by Huddle and We Coach. It's in its second year and it's a digital summit that I want to encourage all of you to check out if you haven't heard about it. It specifically is organized to think through women in sports. We Coach, of course, is an organization that champions women coaches across many sports. And the summit is happening today, Monday, December 14th, and tomorrow, Tuesday, December 15th. It is free. So if you want, pause this and run over. Uh, register for the Breakthrough Summit at breakthroughsummit.live. That's breakthroughsummit.live. Um, and check out the conversations that are happening over there. They feature many former guests of the show, including Muffet McGraw, Kelly Lindsay, Lots of folks that we have had on Burn It All Down and other names across sports like Lachano Robinson or Don Staley that, of course, um, you know, we talk about a lot on here. So please check out the Breakthrough Summit. And now to preview the Breakthrough Summit, I wanted to chat with two people who will be both presenting on it and instrumental in making it happen. First, the CEO of We Coach, Megan Kahn. And I also am so honored to be joined by Mickey Grace, who's a high school football coach and the LA Rams scouting apprentice. So Mickey, Megan, welcome to Burn It All Down. Oh my gosh, let's do this. I'm so happy y'all are here. So I just want to start and I will start with you, Megan. Like The Breakthrough Summit is happening again. And We Coach is, um, you know, a co-sponsor of this. For those folks who aren't as familiar with We Coach, can you just really succinctly break down um, who y'all are and and what you do and why it's so important to mount a summit like this? Absolutely. 
WeCoach has become the premier organization dedicated to recruiting, retaining, and advancing women coaches, specifically women coaches, the unique challenges that women coaches face in the industry. I think that would be an entirely different show if we spent all of our time talking about those challenges. So I'll just fast forward past those. Um, and we have been thinking about this for months um, and we were able to seamlessly align with Huddle, who's really the premier entity in the tech space. And so you have us in the women coaches community and you have them in the tech space. It was a, a partnership that just aligned and made a lot of sense gosh, over two years ago now. And so last year, um, we garnered a lot of success with the first event and we came back now in year two in a COVID space. And we're like, how do we, how do we not only raise the bar on last year, but how do we also separate ourselves from everyone in, else in the space who's doing a lot of virtual and digital content? And so if anyone uh, listening knows me, I have my foot on the gas 90 miles an hour all the time. And so we're going bigger, better, and bolder in year two. We have two days, we have double the speakers, we have more sports represented across our speaker lineup, and we have really, really intentional dialogue and conversations laid out that touch every single level of a coach or an administrator of who will be listening, who will be participating. So I think there's gonna be something for everybody in there. That's awesome. I am thrilled that this is happening. And I want to zoom out a little bit here um, because for folks who listen to this show regularly have heard me go on and on and, and historicize um, women coaching sports. We've talked about Title IX, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And one of the disparities that arose in the wake of Title IX was pushing women out of administrative positions in the game, um, both as coaches, as athletic administrators, and so on and so forth. And I feel like we coach is such um, a fundamentally necessary component of, of um, where we're at. Um, and to uh, try to address those disparities and support and sustain um, the development of, of people on the sidelines and in the front offices and all that. So I am really thrilled about this summit and the work that y'all are doing. Now, a lot of our conversations have centered around getting women back into the sidelines on women's sports, particularly we've talked about basketball and soccer, et cetera. But one of the really thrilling parts of, of having Mickey join us in this conversation is to think about what that also looks like um, as we are now seeing women go into the sidelines at basketball and Mickey coaches football, which everybody knows was my childhood dream. And so I have much admiration and a little sprinkle of jealousy, um, but I would love to kind of juxtapose and talk about what are some of the challenges that are unique to breaking in to coaching in a men's dominated sport versus in the women's side. You know, it's a, such an interesting question because we think a lot about women coaching on the women's side, but if you look at the total number of coaching positions, women make up only a mi minuscule percentage of the total number of coaching jobs. And especially as we look at what Mickey's been able to do in the NFL on the men's side, or what say Lindsay Harding, who's another one of our speakers in the NBA side, there, there haven't been women before them. So they weren't able to see somebody that looked like them, to, to see somebody breaking through for their paths to be already blazed. So one, they're trailblazers in being able to break down doors. And we're going to hope that women can see somebody who looks like them and be able to follow in those footsteps. The other knock, and I know Mickey would be able to speak to this, is how many times does she hear, well, you never played football at this level. You, you didn't have that opportunity. What do you know about coaching men? 
at this level. And so there's just so many barriers and gender stereotypes against women, especially getting into that male dominated side. You know, and I would say the third thing is we know, and it's a lot of times it's white men who are in those hiring positions and homogeneous hiring practices are going to, white men are going to hire white men. You're going to hire people who look like you. And especially also they have their good old boys club, um, not a knock against men, but it's, it's just the nature of the industry still is a good old boys club. And so um, as soon as we can get more diversity in the front office and start to diversify even hiring practice, I think the more we'll see women on the sidelines. Absolutely. And Mickey, I'm going to throw it to you. Like we, I just did an um, episode on, on Black college football coaches where we talked about Loxley's program and we talked about some of the barriers to entry. And so what has your experience been breaking into football where there's already so many barriers and so many like efforts to try to get Black men onto the sidelines as a Black woman occupying that space? Um, you know, I imagine it's been quite a journey. Yeah, um, it has. There's so many different ways you get it. Like the people who I actually coach have no concern. Um, They're kind of just like, listen, we need the keys to feed our family. So we don't care who has the keys. If you're willing to give them to me, I want to hear what you have to say. And that's been my experience with the players. Coaches eventually respect coaches, whether they have a preconceived notion or not. That's not my business. I don't act. It's not my job to disavow that. You'll figure that out on your own. Um, it's really the people who aren't even playing people who are around coaches around scouts around players who think that there should be a problem or that will be a problem and so the only time I really hear well she hasn't played the game is from people who also don't play or coach the game it's from fans it's from other people who are very dedicated to their fantasy leagues and you know it's so wild to think that my greatest prize is the Super Bowl trophy right is the Lombardi trophy Vince Lombardi also never played in the NFL so like if my greatest my greatest prize bears the name of someone who also never played this game at the highest level mind your business like that's not yours to comment on because it's also not mine you know someone always comes out well she played in high school that part okay well she didn't play in college okay well neither did joe Gibbs or charlie weiss and you're never going to say that they're not legends or or mike leach like you're never going to say that that man mike leach who has been on the sidelines of the very first super bowl ever and is still involved in the game today I met him when I was in Tampa Bay as an intern. He's still around, still giving knowledge, still dropping gems and being around. He's such a, it's no way you can deny that man's a legacy, you know? And then they say, well, you know, you're never win a head coach. And if that's the only success of a true coach is winning a Super Bowl, that means we've only had 52 successful football coaches in history. And that can't possibly be true, right? Like that can't be it. So all these things that they like knock against me, you could knock against anyone. Absolutely. And so I know that I can't take them personally and I can't, you know, pay too much attention to those because that's not the reality. On the other side of the inclusion and providing equity to not just women coaches, but black and brown coaches, there's a whole other conversation about how black coaches are treated what's the hireable percentage the the rooney rule what that really did did it help us did it hurt us um you know how many people are coaching and i think there's the problem with head coaches is you can't be a head coach until you're a coordinator and you can't be a coordinator until you get a room and and when i say in charge of a room i mean a position coach that's what it's called like you're in charge of your position's room you can't get a room at one of these power five schools or one of these nfo programs until you make the relationships with those who are hired, but the, those who are hired only make relationships with those who they trust. And it, it, it becomes a snowball effect of just 
racist masculinity, like anti-feminist conversations that I don't care to be involved in, you know? And it's funny now I'm at the Rams because I actually impressed the head coach of the Chargers, Anthony Lynn. And I actually impressed him by asking a question that he kind of was a little offended by, but that also impressed him because how can you offend Anthony Lynn? But they were having a conversation on a Zoom with like 600 coaches about, you know, how do we get hired as black coaches? How do we find the people who are in charge of hiring? What do we do? And, you know, head coach Anthony Lynn, who is amazing, he's awesome. He, he does his best to make sure that his mind is being informed and, and serving equity. And he was talking about how he works harder to find black men and brown men of color who are, who are uh, qualified for the roles that he has available. So I said, okay, what, what have you done to find people who are even more marginalized and qualified than black and brown men? Because although black and brown men aren't seeing equity in hiring, you're not the bottom of the totem pole anymore. So what are you doing to find people who are at the bottom of the totem pole? And he was like, Mickey, for the first time, I don't think I have an answer for you. And he was like, now you and I have to have a conversation. <laughs> and you're on a Zoom with 600 people and you're like, okay, I have to talk to the head coach of the Chargers. Okay, somebody tell me what, tell me their playbook. Tell me, get me ready. Like, let's figure this out. Um, <laughs> and then actually the Rams coaches were on that call and they were like, nah, we, we're going to come, we're going to give you something to do before the other LA team takes you. Like, we don't want them to have you. And that's kind of how I got into this LA role. But it was it was pushing the conversation, which is so poetic if you think about the whole scheme of this. I've been trying to get into the NFL for years, and I get into it by asking what they do to provide equity to those who are no longer, uh, or to those who are at the bottom of the holding pole now, because it's no longer themselves. And they it also gave Black men an opportunity to see, like, oh, there are people even more marginalized than me in these roles. Like, we're not getting in but they don't even know where in it. They're not even getting a look. Exactly. They don't even know exactly. where the door is. We just outside of it. <laughs> exactly. No, I really appreciate that narrative for a number of reasons, um, particularly because I want to think through these pipelines and these kind of pathways, right? And I think about Coach Vivian Stringer and, you know, I write about her when she was in high school and she sued the school to integrate her cheerleading squad. But when you talk to her, when you when she talked about it as a teenager, she was like, I wasn't really into cheerleading. It's just that's what put me on the sidelines. And I would be coaching the boys from my cheerleading uniform for my spot on the sidelines. And thinking about like that story has often given me a framework to think about like how we make pathways out of no ways um, to places that it's hard to even visualize. You can't be what you can't see. And like Megan said off the top, like you are really trailblazing. And so I want to ask both of you and Megan, maybe you could speak to this on a kind of national level. What are some of the new kind of innovations or new programs or new things that you're seeing that are creating pipelines and pathways where there have been none? Because so often I feel like it's these individuals, like right? it's like it's Mickey Grace on a Zoom call, you know, but how are we going to institutionalize these so that for the next person um there is a place where they so they can find that door so that they at least have a roadmap are you seeing things that are starting to orient towards um these kind of investments i, I think from my perspective and being able to look at it almost like from an entire 360 degree lens because what makes our work very interested interesting is that we focus our work on the challenges that women coaches are facing but 
we're only going to be evaluated by how much we move that needle in terms of women in the pro so we have to also drive awareness and create change at the administrator level even though our core work does not focus at that level so it's sort of this 360 degree look and let's just scope out and for the first time young girls and young boys are going to see kamala harris as the first black and south asian vice president and be able to see somebody who looks like them so it is a lot about visibility and what Mickey's doing and what Lindsay Hardy's doing and what some of these other folks are doing to create, to be the first, but their job is not to be the last. Um, and there's things that we're doing specifically, we launched our We Amplify initiative, which is all about driving the presence, visibility and voice of our black and brown coaches um, and women coaches, specifically women coaches of color um, around giving them access to certain things to help level that playing field, to put them in positions where they do have the tools to succeed. One thing that we're seeing on the women's side is if they fail, they're not they're recycled or they're out of the game. They're not recycled. Whereas on the men's side, we see men may not be successful, but their buddy's gonna hire them as an assistant coach. And then they're gonna be back into a head coaching position before long. That, that's not happening on the women's side. And so how are we really giving them tools, the resources, the support mechanisms in place that they might not be getting on campus, or they might be not be getting through their sport association, but they can network, they can build their network, they can be visible, we can amplify those voices and really use those platforms. Um, you know, diversity and inclusion are two of our value statements. And, you know, after after everything we saw happen last March and the George Floyd killing and Breonna Taylor, all of that is like, our words aren't enough. What action are we putting behind those words? What discernible things is our industry, specifically more at the collegiate landscape? I think we're seeing a lot of things move forward. There's the College Coaching Diversity Pledge, which now more than 60 Division One athletic directors have signed that's specific to men's basketball, women's basketball, and football. But hopefully, eventually, we would see that be applicable to more sports as this movement grows. Absolutely. Mickey, you want to jump in on that? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I know of the programs that I've been involved in or I've even um, kind of helped shape. Um, so I know you talked before about the National Coalition of Minority Football Coaches, um, which I know the only ones I know are specific to football because that's the world I'm in. Megan is like down for all coaches. So like shout out to Megan, but I don't have Megan's brain. My, my brain is very one track on football. Um, and so the National Coalition of Minority Football Coaches that Coach Loxley started um, just in August and then we went into the season and so like we're all <laughs> we're all all over the place um, but it started because he realized out of 130 FBS uh, head coaches only 14 of them were black none of them have women on their staff we actually have like one woman who's even sort of in a coaching role um, but it, it's really hard to find places to get equity so now you know coach Loxley also he even admitted that he only started this when he was on the back nine of his career. And it's a lot of, you run into the, the challenge that oftentimes black people have to risk everything when they want to speak their minds, when they want to speak up and like be a, a point person almost. Like if you decide to talk about equity, you will automatically become a spokesperson. Not that you ask for that, not that you ask to represent you, your intersection, any of those things, you just will become it. And so Lockley decided like, okay, if I'm going to do this, let's figure it out. Let's do it right. And that's how we started the Coalition of Minority Football Coaches, which is used to promote and prepare Black and Brown 
coaches for those coordinator roles, for those roles where you have you are in charge of a room. Um, and, and that's what it's for to prepare so that when we do get in these roles, because also once we do get in these roles, if you don't do these roles perfectly to the T, your forgiveness, you know, the window, the margins are, are tiny. And for me, they don't exist. The moment I mess up or make a typo, it's see, this is why, you know, versus with men, it's like, don't do that again. For black men, it's like, you got one time to make a mistake, but you have to produce, you have to do these things. You have to validate and make our people who we're fighting against, you have to shut them up. I can't do my job. I have to worry about being perfect. And so besides the coalition, there is also um, the women's football forum from the NFL front office um, that is put on by Sam Rappaport every day, who has just been a champion for women in football. And uh, I went to the forum in 2018 and the relationships I met there are still providing me space and grace now to be in football. I was named uh, Miami Dolphins Bill Walsh fellow this year before COVID <laughs> in March, early March. Uh, but I got that from Scott Pioli, who's been a champion for us. And also I was going to use Scott Pioli's family foundation who provides uh, scholarships and grants and scholarships and grants, right? He gives women in football money so that we can live because oftentimes you have to take jobs that either don't pay us anything or pay us very little and how can we survive? So he gives us grants and scholarships so that we can survive while we take the jobs you have to take to get into the roles we eventually want to be in. So those are three of the biggest um, groups and, and foundations that I'm a part of, the coalition, the forum, and the Scott Pioli Family Foundation that has really just shaped my entire career. Hey, Lindsay, are you busy mm -hmm. right now? It's a busy time of year. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. I was thinking about like how December, we're like in a pandemic, the holidays are coming like any second now. It's cold. I don't know. Everything feels hard right now and I just think we should all be making part of our life easier and if you are looking to hire someone Indeed can help you do that. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person that you need to keep your business going. Best of all you only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to indeed.com slash blue wire. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. All right. I have realized I have done y'all, my Uncle Quentin, and everybody such a disservice by only telling you about football bets on Bet Online. Like, obviously, we know that they go the extra mile to give you game spreads and totals and teams and players and coaching. You know, I've been saying they give you more options to wager, but how silly of me to say all the options only for football because they literally give you all the options to wager, like more sports than just that. For instance, you could lay a bet on snooker, which I Googled, <laughs> and it's sort of like pool. Like... Everything you could do if, you know, you want to lay a bet on an album of the year, Jess, you can go 
hypotaylor. Oh, She's at negative 250 odds, which again, <gasps> I don't know what that means. I don't know what means, that means either. <laughs> but you could do it. So they have all the Grammy Awards there, snooker, table tennis, all of the things. If you're really a uh, you know, masochist and you want to do political futures, you can even lay a bet on who will win the 2024 election. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Reject that thought. But by uh, far, uh, <laughs> my absolute favorite thing that you can go bet on right now is competitive eating. You can go lay a bet on if Joey Chestnut in the hot dog contest for 2021 will be over or under 74 and a half hot dogs. Mm. So listen, go to Bet Online, take advantage of all the sign-up bonuses, bet on some hot dogs. Don't forget to use the promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts on clearly everything. I wonder what the COVID protocols are at the hot dog eating contest. I try not to dwell. <laughs> that is such a burn all down question. After hearing that, how will they be handled? Oh, gross. One of the barriers that we see with women in sports um, from multiple levels um, is the issue of childcare and support, especially when you think about coaches and the lower level infrastructure requires frequent moves, it requires low pay, um, varying amounts of health insurance. What does that look like, you know, when you also are in a position where you might be parenting? And then we've also seen um, women who are coaches who come back very early after childbirth, right? And while the media is like running with this story, like they're badass, like let's glorify this. This is, you know, Pat Summit touching down and on a recruitment trip to have, you know, her son. But also it's like, these are forced choices often. And so I'm wondering um, on this particular one kind of barrier, um, I know Mickey that this is something that you have, you've contended with as well, but like what are we seeing on the front in terms of support specifically for childcare, um, the infrastructure for um, you know, women who are choosing to parent or are parenting as they are trying to transverse these structures that often feel like they are diametrically opposed to being able to maintain a family in that way. Um, yeah, and this is actually something we're going to touch a little bit about on the Breakthrough Summit. So I hope you guys chime in to, to see uh, the answers and the questions we have that surrounds uh, equity around motherhood and coaching. So I'm really excited to touch on that during the summit. Also, um, I, I mean, we don't know, right? Like, we don't know. We don't know. And the illusion is that like moms know because men pass the buck to us normally right like there's always someone to pass the buck to but there's no one for the moms to pass the buck to like the buck stops at us and so if no one else does we have to do and I think that motherhood has always been about your bench like think about like a basketball bench like and you you got to be ready like on any given day if you ask a mom out and they say okay let me ask the babysitter 
chances are they're not asking one babysitter. And the person who ends up babysitting probably wasn't one or two. They were probably like your sixth man of the year. Like that's who they probably were because moms have to have a bench of people for different things. And some people want to support our kids. It's like, oh, let me know. I'll take your kid. And other people just want to support me and don't want to support her. And some people want to support us. And you got to kind of use people's willingness around you, that community that you can find, whatever your village is. And you really depend a lot on them. For me, I had to have a conversation with my village. Like, listen, I have one with them every before every football season. All right, pregame talk, bring it in. Listen, this is what it's going to look like this year. This is what I'm going to need. Who's willing to do what? And I'll have people say like, hey, I can do Saturdays if you got Saturday games. And when I am coaching high school, they're like, I can do a Saturday game. I can sit with her in the stands and I'll ask volunteers to do things. But I'm also, no, she's the only human I can hear that's not on the sideline naturally. And I'm just like, okay, she's cool. I'm cool. Let me focus on my defense. But it's a lot of like, who can replicate for a short amount of time the care I can give to my kid while I give my care to everyone else in the world. Also, sometimes it forces men, when I'm in their lives, it forces them to look at the social and gender roles in their life and in their house, which some are not ready to look at. Some are not interested. I remember talking to a coach who was so frustrated that I was a parent and I was on the road to take this interview with him because he's like where's your kid where's your kid and I was like do you, right I was like do you know that one of your coaches has 12 kids and I guarantee you some of them you don't know where they are but I'm like if you can name all 12 of them of your defensive coordinator's kids I will tell you where my kid is right now and he couldn't also he realized that he's like and he called me later and he was like Mick my wife does the parenting all the parenting, not half the parenting, not some of the parenting. She does it all. And I have stopped her from doing things she wanted to do in her life because she had to take care of the kids because I refused to give up or meet her at any part of this. And so if I hired you and let you live out this dream, I would have to face the reality that I've stopped her for my whole life. And I was like, okay, so because you didn't provide equity in your house, you can't provide me a job I'm qualified for. So when you go two and 13 next year, like you did, you know, call me and I'll tell you why your defense sucked because you had an opportunity to be better and you chose not to for fear of who you've been. And for comfort and for ease, you know. For comfort, for ease. Yes, I like those words. Megan, did you want to add on to that? Uh, yeah, I do. I'm not a mom. I'm the world's best aunt there is. And, and I know I've been around my sister and her two little guys and my sister-in-law and who, her two little girls. And my hats are off to all the women out there in our profession, in other professions that are carrying the load, especially in coaching. It's, as Mickey said, it's 24 seven, it's 365. It's around, there's, there's not a lot of barriers and boundaries for moms um because the buck does stop with them and and i think that is one of the things that we hear for women who want to stay in the coaching profession is how can they do both right how can they do both and mickey alluded to we're going to discuss it in the summit we have another panel um, that's going to specifically talk about how are we supporting women in the coaching industry and this is definitely going to come up even from an administrator perspective what do you put it in coaches contracts that allow them to do both and thrive in both positions as a mom and as a head coach are you paying, especially if they're a nursing mom, they have a toddler, are you paying for them to go on road trips with the team when mom has to travel and, and are you paying, are you allowing them to come to practice? Do you create a really flexible department culture 
for dads too, right? And, and what kind of a culture are you creating in the department that makes it really family oriented in the power five schools and those with money that can better support women certainly have a better opportunity to do that. But I think that's one of the things that we're seeing separate. Um, and even if you look at our women in college coaching report card, which is a partnership with the Tucker Center and what schools are getting A's on those report cards. And it's a byproduct of the culture they're creating within their department. Are they supportive of women? And um, what are they putting in women's contracts? How are they luring women to take those head coach positions? Absolutely. And like thinking of the infrastructure of care that is built in and baked in and sustains so much of these coping things is what people don't want to have to confront, which is what I really appreciated about that kind of vision of it is that it's, it's unsettling, right? When you have to uh, turn the mirror on yourself and the systems that you've upheld. That's a really good point, though. COVID has forced people to see into their own homes Absolutely. like they never have before. And people have been like, oh, how did y'all do this? And it was like, oh, right. Oh, you're welcome. Exactly. Exactly. I, I thought that was gratitude. Um, I pose this question a lot to think through. Like, I, I had my daughter really young. I had her when I was a freshman at Temple. And um, people are like, well, how did you go straight through right into your PhD? And so, like, I invert the question. I'm like, the question, not like, how did I individually do it, but what was around me that allowed it to be possible? Right. And so like, when you were saying that about like huddling your team, like that was me, like my husband's frat brothers were clutch. Would I ever leave my kids with them now? No, but I have like better quality recruits, let's say (laughs) to choose from. But at the time it was this kind of like everybody's stepping up. You just kind of piece it together, but it shows you what infrastructure you do need to replicate on an institutional basis to make it happen. But I think that with this time in COVID, one of the things that has happened when the world kind of stopped, all of a sudden we had this magnifying glass on how systems work and mirrors were held up and a lot of our kind of disillusionment about or like our romantic notions of things have been abruptly stopped. And one of the difficulties is that as we are talking about diversity and equity inclusion in coaching ranks, we're also dealing with a time where how do you responsibly coach during a pandemic? How do you weigh safety with what your goals are and what your job is? And we are seeing more and more coaches be vocal about the fact that their teams are tired, Um, You've had people talk about opting out of bowl games. People are talking about the exhaustion. They're talking about the rising numbers. And I'm really interested about how we have these conversations about pushing into positions of power, which is part of what it means to coach is all of a sudden you're in a different position in the whole scheme of things. In something like a global pandemic um, where you are juggling these small opportunities, like you have an opportunity this year in a season that's what is even happening, how how do we juggle all of these concerns to think about what pandemic sports look like and what it's gonna look like on the other side? I'll speak from the collegiate space. The infrastructure of college athletics is so dependent on that revenue we're seeing and have seen since March Madness wasn't played last spring, we're seeing that crumble. And so those making decisions on campus and in conference offices are between a rock and a hard place. I don't envy anyone in those positions right now. Everyone is being forced to make extremely difficult decisions, weighing the financial aspects on one side and you know, student athlete experience. We're seeing and have seen the mental health of 
professional athletes and college student athletes, you know, plummet in this time period and they're being forced in isolation, all these things, these, these very difficult positions. Look at, I think Coach K just said Duke's not going to play any more non-conference games the rest of this year. It's they're being forced to prepare for games and, you know, a few hours before game time, the game might be canceled because of positive results and it's physically exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. The amount of money being spent on campuses to do all of this testing for, for safety and try to put our, our athletes in positions to be able to play safe is there's no playbook for what anyone is going through right now. And so it's trying to make the best decisions in real time, but also having a lot of pressure behind those decisions and trying to weigh all of these different factors that are coming at us in real time. It's extremely difficult. Absolutely. Um, COVID is a mess. It's just a mess. I think about uh, this moving forward. We've talked a lot about pandemic sports and what what happens in the wake. And when I was talking um, on the episode we did on Black Male College Football Coaches a few weeks ago, one of the points that Derek White made was that oftentimes, especially we were talking about coaches in the Big Ten, they get their job on the back of crisis, right? So um, Loxley comes in to Maryland after they're dealing with the fallout of killing Jordan McNair. You know, we, um, obviously James is here after it's a dusky scandal, essentially. Um, and that times of crisis open up opportunities because A, there's less of a rope, but then in that kind of mess, it's like almost, oh, well, we've hit the bottom. Like, what do we have less to lose? And I think about this with my friend Candace Lee, who, you know, now is the AD at Vandy, where I very much felt like it's like, here's your position. And also here's a lot of mess coming your way. And I'm kind of looking at this moment with youth sports being impacted, with collegiate sports being impacted, with professional and Olympic sports being impacted. It wouldn't surprise me if more and increasing coaching opportunities also come out of this. And how do we contend with these doors opening in this mess, knowing that the the kind of safety net is going to be barely there and that we're putting people in positions to get their opportunity when things are really, really tough. Anyone who kind of gets in these jobs and realizes that the safety net is missing probably also is already aware that there was really no safety net for us anyway. Like the people who are getting these jobs out of whatever reason, um, we kind of can't be concerned with something that we that isn't ours to uphold anyway, you know, like we don't get the safety, we don't get forgiveness, like, and I mean, minorities in coaching and scouting, like our, our, our leash is almost non-existent anyway. Uh, and so now it's just how well can I not make this more messy? How well can I just respond, just make the best decision? And it almost forces you to elevate who you are. So it makes you, I don't I hate that I've internalized this to make me better, but it has, you know, it makes me a better coach because now I have to think of things that are in my blind spots naturally anyway. I have to think of responses. I have to think of interpretations to something that I'm trying to do and making sure that it's as universal as possible. And I think that, um, you know, the pandemic has been horrible. It was also the only reason that I'm with the LA Rams now because they started a scouting apprenticeship um, in response to the death and murder of George Floyd. So, you know, they saw fit to provide a space for minorities to learn a skill that gets taught through 
being in it, but we can't be in it if we don't know anyone in it. And then you won't learn. Like they, they realized where the snowball was and they needed to stop it before it got too big. And, and so this was their response to that. Um, and I have a GM who is really invested in not stopping it here and making sure that this is an annual occurrence for them and really pushing for us to be and grow and do the best we can. So I just feel really blessed to be at the Rams, but also people have gotten jobs because they were someone's next door neighbors because they were related and had the same bloodline as others. And so if I get it because, you know, a social crisis that was already in my life, something that I was well aware of, always but you just found out we were in a social crisis if I get a job because of that reason what else like okay cool we're going to continue to respond socially but also like now I have an opportunity to do a job that I would have never been able to do otherwise you know they've operated in that patriarchy for so long that now them attempting to be human-like cool great great you're human now let me let me outwork everybody because you know that's what I do you know, and so you kind of can't think differently about a job because of how you got it, because they certainly would not. And, and Mickey, I'm going to piggyback on that. I think it's such an interesting question, too, because in our industry, probably more so than any industry I can think of, failure is normal, like failure in terms of only one coach wins a championship. How many coaches have a losing season? It's normal to get fired. Um, and so that normalizing those failures in our industry is like one chapter closes and the next door opens. And so regardless how you got into that position, it, I don't think it matters. It's like what you do once you get into that position um, is where the rubber meets the road. And the pandemic, I think, is just magnifying the challenges of our industry um, in trying to play or the entertainment industry is probably in a very similar anything that um, has large crowds and has physical contact and all of these interactions. And so, um, you know, kudos to the Rams for what they're doing to put and give opportunities to somebody like you, Mickey. I just think that's awesome. Yeah. As we, as we conclude here, um, what I always want to do is like so often for those of us who are, you know, marginalized or trailblazed, like all of it, a lot of times the questions get redundant, right? It's recount your trauma. Here's your pathway. How, what are your barriers? What are the obstacles? But I really want to know why you love your job, what the joy is, what the payoff is, what you love about it. Like when I started from the top and said, like my my touchdown was my first one, right? My goal in life was to marry Emmett Smith and then be the first husband wife standard in the NFL. And I was like, well, that's a little unreasonable. So I'll just be the first woman coach in the NFL, right? Like that was my dream for so much of my childhood right and the the joy for me in that was that I love this sport I love bossing people around I I can't not shout when I'm watching things like I was like I was made for this but one of the things that I think is so important is to also hold space for why we push into these spaces in the first place and where the joy is what makes people want to do it and what you know, their greatest hope for the future in their field is away from just thinking about all of the cards stacked against them. So I would love for Megan, you to tell me about, you know, what it was it about athletic administration? What drew you to WeCoach? What do you love? And what is your greatest hope for the future? I have had the privilege. Uh, I was a college student athlete. I coached 
in Division One. I've served in two conference offices. I've run two NCAA Women's Final Fours, and then I came to our nonprofit world. And so when my world expanded from basketball to all of these sports, and I understood that so many women were having the same challenges, regardless of what ball they shot or what stick they used. Um, and I saw that they were craving community and support. And really that's what we coach has been able to do is like, we're literally building something from the ground up. And, and anyone that knows me, I'm a builder and I'm a dreamer. And so I look at it, we're not only building an organization, we're building a movement. We're walking right alongside with the women's empowerment movement. And one thing I'm really proud of, and I think probably comes back to my why and, and how I thrive and how I continue to wake up every day, never feeling like this is a job. The, the women that attend our events, whether it's our NC Women Coach Academy, Breakthrough Summit, our mentor program, they, there's one word, they always use the word transformative, that their experience was transformative, either personally or professionally or both. And so I think that's really what continues to fuel me in making a difference and helping to drive change for women in coaching. That's great. Mickey? Yeah, um, I think for me, it's two very different buckets, like why I am involved in football, but then why am I involved in like providing and educating and disseminating information about equity for women in sports are like two different things like football I literally the the very first moment I knew I was going to be involved in football was some I was like oh I should join the football team and someone said you can't join the football team and I was like okay well that's it that was like the moment that was when like the 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 music in the movie started playing and then you see the like flip book of my work from from then to now um but that was just kind of a moment and then it was just playing playing football but then it was okay how do I get back to football how do I get involved with the grass I played rugby I tried to fake it for a second it didn't work um and then when I got into coaching I wasn't getting into coaching I was volunteering at my high school who was going through a traumatic experience back then that was in 2012. Oh, when they merged Germantown. When they merged Germantown with Martin Luther King. The rudest thing in the world. Devastated. My husband's devastated, from Philly. But <laughs> I was devastated. There's a documentary about it called We Could Be King. Feel free to look it up. It was devastating. Um, it was also dangerous um, because we spent years putting people by block, not zip code, by block, separating into these two rival schools for safety reasons but I went back because those seniors were freshmen and sophomores when I was a senior playing so some of them were my teammates some people I played against before you know and so I was just here to help I was here to be a voice I was here I it took me another three years to call what I was doing coaching I was teaching them the defense I played but it took me three years for someone to be like so you're a coach. And I was like, oh, not really. And they asked me, like, what are you so afraid of? And I didn't have a good answer. And I always have a good answer. I pride myself on having good answers and I didn't have one. And so that's when I became Coach Mickey. And that, that, that acceptance of myself um, is now why I continue to be in it. It's why I continue to do it because this is who I am. And so I'm just here to really accept who I am in life and that's being a coach and then being a coach seeps out into the world, seeps out into my athletes, my NFL players to learn, my my students, my high school students to be good people, to to provide for themselves, their families. Like it just, it goes on and on, it snowballs and all the, it's like a sneeze and it goes in like a million different directions and you really have no idea how you're helping people, but you know you just show up. 
people think parenting is you need to read the books and do all the things. 90% of parenting is just showing up. Looking at you, dads. 90% of parenting is just showing up. Show up. Show up. Show up wrong. Show up misdressed. Show up embarrassing. Just show up for them. And so showing up for my athletes, for my kids, for my room is the reason why I'm still in football. But also I had no idea what I was doing any step of the way. No idea. I was feeling around in the dark for a decade. I was visiting people and trying to learn and finesse and maneuver. And I had no idea where to go ever and how to make big moves and play the cards I was dealt. And when I'm, I have like two cards, where do I go? Like, what am I doing here? Like, I have no options. And so I now hold, also I hold a small group called All Things Forward, where it's me and a bunch of other women in football who are trying to learn how to move up. Because if I didn't know, I know women still don't know, right? There's not enough paths. Like the, the, when you walk in the snow behind someone, you can walk in their footsteps. But if they haven't walked in deep enough or long enough, like the snow will cover up before I can get to them. So how can I continue to make, you know, show people where those steps are to like follow behind these women? What did they do? Who were they around? How to figure out if the programs I thought I deserved to be at, programs I thought that this was my program didn't work and I was devastated. Now what? What do you do? You know, how do you find a needle in a needle stack? And, you know, that that feeling of I have no idea is the reason why I'm in education and providing equity and women in sports and being involved with people who have no idea what comes next. Because none of us have ever known what came next. Lo Locus is um, the assistant defensive line coach for uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Two years before that, her and I were playing, coaching against each other with women's football and the Women's Football Alliance. You know, like she didn't see it coming. It just came. It came from years and years and years of being ready and staying ready and just being, doing what you love, no matter the cost, no matter where you are. Even if, you know, the sacrifice that she made was, I'm going to coach for women's football and keep my job. And then when she went off to the Bucks, it was like, okay, there's your moment. But it also took her. 30 years to get there. And I think that is so critical because part of the conversation that we miss sometimes when we tell these stories is those who who couldn't sustain that. And part of the really important work that we coach is doing is that for every Mickey Grace, there is, you know, a handful of people who on year eight called it quits, who on year seven, you know, couldn't do it anymore you know, and what happens when that burnout, that struggle, when it's not, you're not on the other side of that, when you're not saying this has made me stronger and now this opportunity came, who have we lost along the way? And so part of the importance, I think, of the work both y'all are doing and the work that we coach does um, and the work that the Breakthrough Summit and the conversations that are, are necessary to have is that we can catch those people who would otherwise be rendered disposable, who would fall through the cracks, who we don't have those safety nets for. We can cre create our own safety net to continue to help people along the way so that when we tell these stories it's not the only anymore um and it's you know as much about the joy as it is about the the things you had to transverse to get to that position and that is you know that is my hope and I really appreciate all the work that y'all are doing to make that um you know the future that we're heading towards and to get people into the game in whatever way they want to be in the game and showing up and connected um to this work Thanks so much for having us. I hope all of the listeners 
sign up for a Breakthrough Summit at BreakthroughSummit.live and watch with uh, 5,000 plus of your closest friends on Monday and Tuesday, December 14th and 15th. Yes, yes, please check it out. Flamethrowers, there are conversations you surely do not want to miss. And I know that we will be following up with many of the participants and keeping our eye on WeCoach and Huddle and tracking both Megan and Mickey because once you're flamethrowers, you know, we'll never leave you alone again. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time today.